Siegel's quick temper earned him the nickname Bugsy. No one used this name to his face unless they had a death wish. Bugsy Siegel was one of the main players in Murder Incorporated, which was the enforcement arm of the Lucky Luciano mob. Ben worked as a for-hire killer, allowing Lansky to loan him out to other mob bosses. This became the forerunner of the infamous Murder Incorporated, classified by the FBI as a gang of professional assassins. Ben Siegel was a killer, because that's how you got your start. When he'd been a hood, he would take any assignment. The more difficult, the better. And he was considered erratic because he would do things that were really dangerous. While a part of Murder Incorporated, Bugsy Siegel is rumored to have killed over 30 men. In 1937, Bugsy Siegel moved to Los Angeles where he got involved in gambling dens and gambling ships. He also set up a nationwide bookmaking service. He loved Hollywood. He was often in the company of movie stars who couldn't believe that this nice-looking man who dressed so well was actually a murderous thug. Bugsy Siegel was the first Hollywood gangster. He was charismatic, good-looking, a friend of movie stars, politicians, and high society, and a cold-blooded killer. Las Vegas would probably not be what it is today without Bugsy Siegel. His determination and his vision and his sheer will to make the Flamingo Hotel happen is why the rest of it is there. They sort of held a uh, kangaroo court there and decided what are they going to do about Bugsy. And Lucky said, you got to kill him. Let's seal Bugsy Siegel's fate. of 1929 and this was gambling so yeah gambling i think the first time that you know siegel and meyer lansky got a real vision for for what they could do with gambling like outside of say like the numbers rackets and stuff like that they were in a sarasota and they walked into uh like a like a gambling house and it was Guys in black ties, women in evening gowns, and chandeliers, and it was just really magnificent. They saw gambling as something to be high class. Exactly, because the high class people had the most money. And no matter what, if you run a gambling organization, whether it be a crap game in, in a back alley or if you're running a casino, the house always wins. The house always has the advantage. Like, or the highest odds for the player is always going to be blackjack. That's even, I think, I saw a documentary, it was like six to five odds still, you know, that the house is always going to win. So they realized that, hey, if we can have higher class people in, you know, in a gambling structure, we're going to make the most amount of money. And they would, this was 10 years before the, the, the whole Vegas thing ever started. Like this was always in the back of their brains. You know, they never forgot about it. They never forgot about that experience. So that's when they kind of started getting more into gambling, I guess you could say. And gambling had been legal in Cuba already. And they had casinos and the mob was always down there as the well. mob was yeah the mob was heavy in cuba back then and mm -hmm. they and had gonna circle we're gonna circle back to that because okay luciano makes an appearance in cuba yes yes he does 
against orders from his parole, you know, <laughs> he's like, right. I'm going to go anyway. But yeah, I mean, Havana, Cuba was the gangsters owned several casinos and resorts down there and they were, they were making money hand over fist and everything was good to go until, you know, Fidel Castro came around, kind of ruined it for everybody, but yeah. you know, Interesting yeah. how history <laughs> is interwoven with the, with the maneuvers the mob made over the years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they were not a dumb group of guys. They planned out a lot of stuff. And I mean, on a, on a little side note, I mean, uh, Santo Traficante, who was, uh, he was the mob boss down in the South. I believe he was out of Florida. He was really close to Cuba. I mean, Cuba's right there off the coast of Florida. He was financially backing Batista and Fidel Castro at one point because he was like, whoever wins, I, I'm still going to make sure I'm good to go in, in Cuba. Keeping gambling in the back of our minds for right now, Knowing what we know about Bugsy thus far, we've told you that he's flashy, he's charming, he's good looking, he has a sharp style, he's got nice suits. When it was time to get out of New York, the natural progression of things would dictate that he move out of state. Los Angeles, California seemed to be the perfect place for him to carve out his own niche. So in 1936, he packed up his wife and kids and headed west. And remember, he had a wife and kids among all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that, it was like a double life sort of a thing. And I think we'll get more into that, too. Yeah. Um, literally for the glitz and glamour of Hollywood that he knew he would be able to fit in quite easily. There's several reasons that he probably went to Los Angeles. The, uh, the Dragna family out there, they were into... The movies, uh, they were, you know, extorting the studios and and all this stuff. And there was a lot of money to be made there. I mean, up until, you know, even the 70s and 80s, the mob was pretty big influence in in some Hollywood scenes. But so and he loved he loved Hollywood, though. He had everybody keep in mind I don't obviously nobody's old enough to have actually remembered these years I imagine but back in these times late 30s and the 40s mobster movies were it everybody was this was the movies that they were making and you got to think Bugsy Siegel is he's known so when he gets out there all these people are they're like this guy's a real gangster you know, he's real gangster, but they're looking at him and they're like, he's charming. He's mm -hmm. extremely handsome. He's very charismatic. So he just kind of fit right in there with those circles. And I mean, the yeah. women loved him. He had numerous affairs with actresses and he was pretty well liked guy in and circles. Celebrities wanted to be friends with him. Exactly. But yeah, he wasn't just there for fun and games and no. being chummy chummy with the celebs. Um, with the power of the New York mafia behind him, he arrived in Los Angeles and he was on a mission to take control of the illegal West Coast bookmaking rackets, the drug trafficking and the sex trade work. It was going to be a little bit of a challenge for him to suddenly show up in L.A. and try to figure out a way to make his make a place for himself but he managed to do so and along with some of his associates that came along with him using his savvy business tactics and 
and also his penchant for violence and ability to Im intimidate people into doing things the way he wanted them done and to going along with the way he wanted things to be ran. It didn't take long for him at all to gain control over the bookmaking and narcotics trade and whatnot. So once the cash started flowing in from his various ventures, he didn't hesitate to begin, you know, greasing the palms of the local law enforcement agencies and po politicians. Soon he had all the people he needed paid off and they were in his pocket. He purchased himself and his family a lavish estate in Hollywood. And if anyone ever joined them for dinner, he was always the one to pick up the tab. He continued with his flashy ways. He just had a way with people and people wanted to be his friend. And he was masterful in the way that he was able to mix business with pleasure. Everything he did, whether it was business or if it was pleasure, it was always a calculated business move. When he did these things, it made breaking laws easier. So if you needed to place a bet, he handled it. If you needed an evening with a sex worker, he handled it. If you needed some drugs, he'd handle it. He slid into Hollywood as if he was born and raised there. And it helped that he had one of his childhood friends, um, George Raft, was actually a prominent leading actor in Hollywood at the time, known for playing gangsters in movies. Like you were saying, these were popular genres in the film at that time. And um, those on the outside looking in, it seemed as though people thought George was hanging around Siegel because he was trying to get a better idea on how to betray these mob guys. But others thought it was the other way around, that mobsters were hanging around him in order to learn the ins and outs of the Hollywood lifestyle. That's, uh, that's very, very true. Because like you had stated, there was a lot of money to be made there. And Bugsy, at the end of the day, was still a gangster. And <laughs> you know, so... Right. He was, I don't think he ever showed any interest in being in front of the cameras himself. He you know? he took a screen test, and uh, the mob was not too happy about it. I guess oh. George Raff had arranged for him to do a screen test at one point, and he did, but uh, the mob was not too you know, keen on having him try to be in movies that, and he was not, from what I understand, it was one of the worst screen tests you'd ever seen. So oh. they were like, why don't you just stick with the real thing? Let the actors and actresses, you know, handle the movie business. Right. But he was such a staple in that community that everybody knew who he was. And I mean, even George Raft, um, that coin flip that he does in his gangster movies, that's, he got that from Bugsy Siegel. That's something mm -hmm. Bugsy used to do all the time. You know, he knew the guy and, Raph knew exactly what he was about. So I think at the end of the day, you know, he, he didn't have a problem with trying to help him out, you know? Mm -hmm. So Bugsy, he was making friends with some really big stars at that time. And his daughter, Millicent, her, her godmother is Jean Harlow. Yeah. <laughs> and he was also friends with Clark Gable, Cary Grant, Frank Sinatra, Gary Cooper. Jack Warner. He was making friends not only with actors, but also studio heads as well. He was going to parties. He was showing up at all of the hot spots. He was introduced to the film industry and he really, he loved it. Siegel decided to look past all of, you know, like you had said, trying to be a movie star or whatever. He kind of tried to try his hand at it, but it didn't go well. 
he really wanted to have his hand in where the money was. And that mm. would mean resorting to the tactics of extorting money from film studios instead of, you know, trying to be an actor <laughs> and using threats of violence and bodily harm to make sure that he got things done his way. So yeah, yeah. just like he, had <laughs> he never York. changed his ways. He was yeah. just a different place. <laughs> and just like in New York, Siegel had his wife and kids in a Hollywood home but he also attended to his new fun Hollywood social life. And that meant continuing to see other women, socialites and starlets. And they all tended to fall pretty hard for Bugsy. And one woman is named Countess Dorothy DeFrazo. And she was about 18 years older than Bugsy. And I really wanted to talk about her. Oh, <laughs> yeah. This, this is fascinating. It really so, is. And not that many people know about it either. This lady was crazy. Okay, She was she, a very eccentric. Crazy. <laughs> she was a little bit off. No, she was an heiress, a philanthropist, and apparently a countess through marriage. She was born Dorothy Caldwell Taylor on February 13th, 1888 in Watertown, New York. And she was the daughter of a leather goods manufacturer. She had jet black hair and beautiful blue eyes and she was quite stunning and seductive so she first um was married to a british aviator named claude graham white her husband that husband was best known for organizing britain's very first airmail services as well as landing a plane on the white house lawn and inviting president taft for a flight he's also the only person to ever been awarded three of the most coveted gold flying medals in aviation and the first person from Great Britain to obtain an internationally recognized license to fly. So their marriage didn't really last long, and they divorced in December of 1916. And the divorce took place just after Dorothy had inherited somewhere between 10 and $15 million from her father's estate. So that was like so much money in 1916, oh, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, wow, she's wealthy. So she married again in June of 1923, when she wed Count Dentiste de Frazzo, and he was 12 years older than her. And she moved to the outskirts of Rome, where she purchased and restored one of Europe's most famous houses, or it's actually a villa, called Villa Madabma. It had been designed in the 16th century for Pope Clement VII. Um, there came a time in the early 30s that actor Gary Cooper was in Rome filming a movie, and he and Dorothy would cross paths. And at some point, um, he went to go stay at her place because he had gotten pretty sick and he she helped take care of him while he was there. And while they were while he was recuperating, the two began a romantic relationship um, and she carried on this affair with Gary Cooper pretty much right under her husband's nose that Dorothy and her husband were kind of living separate lives. So keeping the affair under wraps wasn't that difficult. Eventually, Dorothy wanted to carry on with her relationship with Gary she moved to California and she purchased a mansion in Beverly Hills. Through Gary, she made all sorts of Hollywood connections. She transformed her home into one of the most glamorous houses in Beverly Hills, and she would entertain all of her newfound celebrity friends. Eventually, Gary and her would go their separate ways, although they would remain friends. In 1938, Dorothy's sense of adventure had her, this is the most strangest thing I've heard, <laughs> heard about her life, wanted to set sail in search of some sunken treasure. So she rented her mansion out to a friend 
and um, she boarded a schooner that had been owned by a movie studio that filmed the 1935 movie Mutiny on the Bounty, they using this boat. Um, and as fate would have it, Benjamin Siegel was also on this ship as well. And he was the one who did, is, was he the one who led the search for this buried treasure? Do you know that? I'm not a hundred percent sure on that. I have heard that he was, but then I've heard that he wasn't. I've read different accounts of that, but it, in any regard, it's, it's really interesting. Strange, right? It's random. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty random. They believed that off the coast of Costa Rica, there was some sunken treasure and they, a group of very wealthy Hollywood types and aristocrats, Dorothy being one of them, set sail towards Costa Rica. And they went to some of the remote islands off the coast and they spent several days searching, digging, drilling, whatever. They were dynamiting the land too. And nothing was ever found. Yeah. So, <laughs> it was a full-blown treasure hunt. <laughs> yeah, literally, right? Okay, I think they watched one too many movies. <laughs> Probably, Probably, yeah. So the voyage ended up taking somewhat of a disastrous turn when the boat was rocked by some very strong gale winds that broke their mast and wrecked up its sails and left them drifting. So they were towed to Mexico and they got their boat repaired and made their way back to California. And reporters were clamoring for information from Siegel about the voyage, but they believed, reporters believed that it was a front for drugs and weapons trafficking. Did you hear that? Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> there's there's a possibility. Right. But despite, <laughs> despite all of this, that chance encounter with Benjamin would mark the beginnings of a brand new love affair that would last for the next dozen years. And there was always a great deal of gossips and rumors and conjecture swirling around the Count's relationship with Bugsy, though she would insist that they were only friends and business associates and never more. Not a hundred percent, I believe that, but <laughs> I I think they were probably a thing. I think but, so too. Yeah, but they also partnered up in some financial and business dealings as well. They attempted to sell black market weaponry and explosives to the Italian government. You see, during World War II, um, Italian dictator and leader of the National Fascist Party Benito Mussolini was actually staying at Dorothy's villa in Rome. And it was frequently used for their party gatherings and whatnot. And remember, this was a man who was chummy chummy with Adolf Hitler, right? So, uh, yeah, <laughs> they were like BFFs. <laughs> it's really funny because uh, when he went over there, he was in a sit down meeting with Gerning and uh, Goebbels. And these right. two were very high up in the Nazi party. Anybody, I'm sure everybody knows their names. And as everybody knows, Bugsy Siegel was Jewish. Right. So he... Bugsy don't care, though. <laughs> he, <laughs> he wants to sell him some weapons. <laughs> he does. And he actually wanted to kill Goebbels and, and Gerning, right. or Goning, however you pronounce his last name. He wanted to kill him. And the Countess pretty much had to plead and beg with him like please do not kill these guys cuz he was going to he was going to shoot him on the spot. He he straight up he's like I'm going to I'm going to kill him. They're killing Jewish people like he didn't Mussolini really didn't bother him too much. He was just trying to make some money. 
But yeah, when it came to the Nazis, he was not a fan. And he yeah. almost, almost he killed both her. of them. Yeah, he, he listened, listened to her. Yeah. So he decided not to. But I think he had later said that he wished he had. Yeah. So Siegel and the Countess were hoping to enter into somewhat of a contract with Mussolini. But what they had was an innovative new explosive called an atomite which was purportedly more powerful than dynamite, but their demonstration kind of flopped and the dictator was not impressed. So no deal was ever signed. So yep. don't worry, Bugsy never, you know, sold arms to, <laughs> to the fascist party. <laughs> I mean, he saw it as a financial opportunity, but it ended, like you said, it fell through and, you know, I'm kind of glad it did because yeah. he already had a bad enough reputation at this right. point. I don't think it would have done him any favors, <laughs> especially, I don't know at what point in the war this was. Wasn't this before the war? Uh, I, I think it was. It was like right at the beginning, like right when everything yeah. started heading up. I, I can't remember the exact date. I think it was 1938, I want to say. Yeah, well, it might have been going on already in Europe. The United States wasn't quite there. Yeah. Yet. Another important figure in Siegel's life was a young woman named Virginia Hill. And I will talk a little bit about how she plays into Siegel's life, but I want to talk about her background a little bit first. She was born August 26, 1916 in Lipscomb, Alabama, and she was number seven of 10 children. And when she was eight, her parents split up and she and all her siblings moved to Marietta, Georgia with their mom. Virginia only made it through school to the eighth grade before dropping out in 1931. At the age of 15, she got married to a kid named George Randall. So in 1933, George and Virginia left Georgia and headed to Chicago to look to break into show business. But it wasn't long after the couple made their way there that they separated and subsequently divorced within the year. Virginia had began earning money. I've heard as a sex worker. I don't know if that's exactly what she was doing, probably, but I don't know. Whether she was getting paid for it or not is one story, but she was sleeping with a lot of gangsters. Um, right. She was laundering a lot of money, too. She was a money carrier. This is how she ended up getting. I'm, I was going to get to how she was working at the World Fair when she met Joseph Epstein. He's um, said to have started to work with Virginia as a quote-unquote financial advisor. And um, it was more like he was grooming her to become a runner for them, um, starting off with taking small ragers at the racetrack. And she became known as Epstein's girl. And rumors were even swirling that the two were lovers, but I read that he was gay and that the two never had a sexual relationship. Yeah, that's pretty much what I always read too. You know, back then it was it was really taboo to be to be gay in any form. Right. Or or any form of society, I should say, but especially in the mob. In the mob. Right. That was that was not something that happened or right. even people being associated with the mob. That was not not something that happened. Right, but it's seems to be common knowledge now yeah so anyway epstein was virginia's way into organized crime at their chicago outfit and she would eventually become known as a mafia queen 
She worked as a go-between for the mob and their frontmen, collecting money from their friends, handing it over to Epstein, and he would launder it to the mob. And she was one of only a very few select number of women who were ever allowed to sit with the mob guys, with the top guys. But she was also known, like you had said, to be sexually intimate or involved with many of them, if not all of them. And it earned her kind of not the most flattering reputation. Um, She was eventually sent to New York as a representative of the Chicago outfit. And she was told to get close to Joe Adonis. And do you want to talk about why she was told to do this? I'm not too familiar with with Joe Adonis. I do know about him and Virginia's relationship and him and Bugsy Siegel's relationship. Do you know why they wanted her to go be close to Joe Adonis? Why the Chicago? No, no that's what I was kind of wondering. I knew that they wanted her near close to him and that was what she was ordered to do. Mm-hmm. I don't know if she really cared about the guy or not, but. Well, that's... judging by some of her socializing i guess you could say i really don't think she cared about too many guys (laughs) um you know her and bugsy had you know later on had a pretty tumultuous relationship to say the least but um i think she was she was out for number one she grew up really poor Mm -hmm. in the south and i i think she realized early on that you can't can't really care about too many people in that world I read that Joe Adonis, who was, he was once the head of Murder Incorporated. Is that right? Yeah, he was one of the, one of the top guys. Yeah. Yeah. And he was actually close friends with Lucky Luciano and Mm -hmm. was fiercely loyal to him. And Luciano was, you know, in business with Siegel as well and Lansky. So Virginia did indeed become close with Adonis and was considered to be his girlfriend. uh, Despite the fact that Adonis also was married with children. In February of 1937, it's been reported that Virginia met Siegel at a bar in Brooklyn. There are other versions of the story that they they met in other places, but the fling that happened, this one was a one-night stand, and then they went their separate ways, and then fate or whatever brought them back together some years later in Hollywood. But either way, that was a one-night stand in New York. Their love affair sparked back up when they they met back up in, in Hollywood. And there were even rumors later on that they got married in Mexico after Esta, Siegel's wife, divorced him in 1946. You kind of forget that this guy was actually married the whole time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And went back to New York and took her girls with her. So after her assignment in New York was completed and she ended her affair with Joe Adonis, she headed back to Georgia in the spring of 1938. A couple months later, she moved with her brother to Mexico for some sort of business dealings, probably drug and running and money laundering stuff that she's doing for the mob. Mm -hmm. And after that, she arrived in Hollywood, where she rented an apartment with her brother. And through the fall of 1938, she continued to be involved in some dubious activities for the mob in Mexico. Like I said, it's most likely been speculated to have been drug trafficking. But by December of that year, Virginia found herself on the FBI's radar while traveling through Brownsville, Texas. It was another man that she met and became became a traveling companion of hers. And just as suddenly as she met him, she married him as well. (laughs) Well, she was traveling. She's all over the place. She married a guy in Texas 
or I'm sorry, in Alabama, a football player named Osgood Griffin. And he came from a pretty wealthy family. They met at a bar. They made nice in the car. They became engaged that same night. <laughs> <laughs> so he's picking up men along the way. So shortly after that, George Raft introduced Virginia to a man named Pat. I don't know how to say his name. DC go. And after that, they started a love affair in short order. And um, soon after that, she was introduced to Siegel by George Raft as well. And they remembered they had that one night stand and they sort of picked up where they left off mm-hmm. and it became pretty much inseparable. They, you know, you always hear opposites attract, but I think her and her and Siegel were, were two in the same. They both had, yeah, they both had that, those tempers. They both were, you know, unlike a lot of the Hollywood starlets, you know, uh, Virginia was used to that lifestyle you know, so not much really scared her. Yeah. She was very beautiful as well. So she had. Oh, yeah, her. she was. She started up her affair again with um, Bugsy. She got her marriage annulled. She continued traveling between Mexico, Los Angeles, and Chicago, conducting her business for the mob. She continued to have affairs with important people. Uh, she had affairs with the son of the Mexican Minister of Finance as well as some politicians in Mexico as well. And she was also carrying on an affair with West Coast outfit boss named John Roselli. Um, Virginia got married again in 1940 in order for one of her lovers to gain entry into the United States legally. And then she began another affair with a musician. And, and in short order, she had a divorce from her latest husband following that. Then sometime in 1940... She and Bugsy, along with her brother, moved into a home in Bel Air. Because of her association with organized crime, it seemed that the media or the paparazzi were constantly following her around. And she and Bugsy were often seen together, especially as guests uh, on movie sets, because they were friends with Gary Cooper and George Raft and people like that. And um, so their love affair was pretty public, Mm -hmm. like you said. Joe Adonis had gotten wind about all of this. And I think he would play a a role later in her life as well. By 1944, um, they were about to go their separate ways because she was sent back to New York, um, back to Joe Adonis. For some reason, she was assigned back to him. And Siegel would head off to Las Vegas with a vision that would become the beginnings of the Las Vegas Strip. He wanted Virginia to join him, but she at that time opted not to. And she ended up going back to Los Angeles where um, when she was done with her business in New York. And we will come back to Virginia Hill in a little bit because in the meantime, Bugsy caught a murder rap. Yes, he did. A Greenberg? Yeah, they used to call him Greeny. You know, they were getting a little bit worried. I believe he was getting ready to start testifying against people. Basically, the order came in for Bugsy to hire a few hitmen. And which he did, but he was told not to participate in the hit with them because of his reputation out in California. Like he's a very well-known figure at this point. So they're like, just hire some guys. Don't get involved personally. But Bugsy Siegel being Bugsy Siegel is like, no, I'm going to go and I'm going to be in on this. (laughs) So him and three other guys, uh, one of which was his brother-in-law. I can't remember Brad his Howard. first. 
Yeah, Krakow's brother-in-law was uh, was one of the hitmen as well. Whitey, yep. I mean, they the hit was successful. They took out Greeny, uh, but there were witnesses that pinpointed, you know, who the guys were. I th- I believe one of the guys who was involved ended up getting arrested. Is what happened, and he ratted out the other guys. The other guys were Frankie Carbo and Albert Tannenbaum. Okay, and I and it's weird because as this is going on in New York. There's a guy by the name of Abe Ellis, which I had mentioned previously in the episode. He's a, he also catches a murder rap. Well, he was highly involved in Murder Inc. He was one of the leaders of it, and he implicated Siegel in some stuff as well. So while this is going on, I mean, Bugsy Siegel did. I mean, he got arrested, and uh, his time in jail also wasn't that bad he uh That's an understatement. <laughs> he Great. he had it fantastic he was getting um catered to by his favorite restaurant in in the city he was allowed to leave whenever he wanted to he could go to you know dentist appointments it was funny one of the one of the guys you know used to say he's like this guy must have had the worst teeth ever because he had you know, 25 a dentist, dentist appointments in like a month, you know, and uh, he was going to nightclubs. He was dressed in his regular clothes. Uh, the DA, however, was not very happy about this, but they had a bunch of people paid off and, and Bugsy was Bugsy Siegel. Some of the witnesses started dying, uh, one of which <laughs> being his, <laughs> one of which being his brother-in-law. <laughs> he had his own brother-in-law killed because they were, thinking he was going to start testifying and all this stuff. And Abe Ellis in New York ended up dead. He fell out of a six-story window um, while under police protection, mind you. (laughs) He was under 24-hour police protection, and he ended up falling. So Bugsy ends up, you know, getting out of jail because nobody is there to testify against him you know some of the witnesses start dying but it really hurt his reputation in hollywood right now because people in hollywood realized holy crap this guy is for real like he just got arrested for murder and almost all the witnesses ended up dead like they shunned him basically at this point after all of that and it hurt his ego quite a bit because he was a pretty, you know, he was a vain guy. He was pretty egotistical, but at the same time, it wasn't all ego because he had these connections. He was this guy that was not scared to kill somebody in broad daylight in front of people. He didn't care, but the way Hollywood saw it, they started to really distance themselves from him after he got out of jail for that, for that murder charge, which, mm-hmm. you know, he, his reputation never, ever fully recovered from that in the in the hollywood sense of the word right in his lifetime bugsy siegel was never really convicted of any serious crimes he had been arrested for a variety of things aside from the murder um possession of narcotics possession of illegal firearms bookmaking even in a sexual assault charge and he was only ever found guilty on two minor charges. Um, in 1930, he was found guilty of gambling and vagrancy. And in 1944, he was given a fine for bookmaking. So the natural progression of things, he headed to Vegas. 
1945, he felt like it was time to reinvent himself. Not only was his reputation damaged in uh, Hollywood, he was under a lot of FBI scrutiny as well. He wanted to try to reestablish himself as sort of a legitimate business person. And he Mm -hmm. found an opportunity to partner with a man named William R. Wilkerson, who was a business person and real estate developer. This guy had established several restaurants and hotels in Las Vegas in the years following the legalization of gambling. So he also founded the publication, The Hollywood Reporter. The venture Siegel wanted a hand in was the construction and development of the Flamingo Casino. And Wilkerson found himself in need of financial backing. Um, He had purchased the land in 1945 with the idea that this hotel was going to be different from those that were further north on Fremont Street or what's known as downtown Las Vegas. Um, he, he called them sawdust joints, which is what they were. And they still kind of are. I went into the Horseshoe recently and the El Cortez, and they're pretty much very old fashioned, like they had been before. And I think the El Cortez still has coin slot machines. They're not yeah. the paper ones, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. Fremont so. Street was, I've went to Vegas a few years, a couple years ago, and, and it, I hung out mostly on Fremont Street just because it seemed more, seemed more real and down to earth. Right. You know, I, I kind of very much like yeah. that area of Vegas as well. And um, I liked going into El Cortez, and I had take that's what sort of spawned my interest is seeing the brass plaque in front of the El Cortez that Siegel had become part owner of the place in 1945. He hired George Russell, um, Wilkerson did, to design the architecture of the what was going to be the Flamingo. It was going to be European-influenced, and he had the idea that this would be a luxury establishment. Lavish rooms, spas, a showroom, a golf course, a nightclub, finest dining in the city, and a casino inspired by French design. And um, Siegel had actually gone to Southern... Nevada in the early 30s, having traveled there with Lansky, with an old friend of Lansky's um, named Mo Sedway. And um, they were looking to expand their outfit there because Nevada had been the first state to legalize most forms of gambling in order to help recover from the Great Depression and the stalled out building of the Hoover Dam project. Siegel and Sedway found some opportunities, but when it came to providing narcotics and sex workers for the crews that were working on the dam, but um, Lansky had Siegel go ahead, gave him the go ahead to run the Vegas outfit. But at the time, he decided to pass that along to Sedway, and Siegel instead went to Hollywood. But by 1940, Vegas was calling again, by the mid 1940s. He lined up his men to take over his businesses in Los Angeles and by 1945, Siegel and his associates were in Vegas. They were still very closely associated with Meyer Lansky. And um, he was the one who had put Siegel in charge of all the West Coast operations, including Las Vegas. And um, he was one of the biggest investors going in, Lansky was. Um, he started off by purchasing the El Cortez on Fremont Street. And it is still up and running today. I told you just now I was there. When Siegel... Because of his reputation, pretty much being, un- he was unwelcomed by the local officials and law enforcement in Las Vegas as well. They knew who he was. They knew about his extensive criminal background. 
even though he had never really been convicted of anything, they kind of rained on his parade there in downtown. His plans started to sputter to a stop. He started to look away from downtown, and he, that's when he found Wilkerson. And um, he purchased a stake in the Flamingo Project. And after that, I guess he wanted full control. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. He realized the potential that was here. He had a vision of a resort where people could say, oh, we went to the Flamingo and it was beautiful and magnificent. We lost, you know, we lost a bunch of money, but we had the most amazing time and it was so great. And like I had said, him and Lansky had seen what a big, super fancy casino, what kind of money that could bring in. So he kind of edged Wilkerson out. Uh, I've heard a couple different variations of it, but the, the main one that I've always heard was that he pretty much went to Wilkerson and said, hey, why don't you uh, sell your percentage uh, to me? And Wilkerson was like, no, this is my dream. I've been working on this for a long time because Wilkerson was uh, one of the reasons he wanted this casino was because he was a compulsive gambler. He had to gamble every single day. So he was like, why well, I might as well just build a freaking casino. <laughs> you know, he's like, I can gamble every day and still make money. So <laughs> he he eventually what it came down to is Bugsy saying, Okay, well, well, if you're not gonna sell your percentage, let's look at it this way. Um, either sell me your percentage or I'm going to kill you. <laughs> so <laughs> That's and you'll see that with uh, a lot of the construction, <laughs> uh, people started realizing exactly who Bugsy Siegel was because when construction would be messed up in the Flamingo, uh, you know they build the hotel part and all this stuff. Uh, he would go through and if you know people were, you know, taking too long or something wasn't done right, Bugsy was always screaming it. You know, I'll kill you, I'll kill you, you know, I'll shoot <laughs> you, and he that that was how he did his business that's how he did it and um so wilkerson pretty much you know sold out and uh went back to california but yeah after that uh bugsy was in main control of all construction of the flamingo he was the main owner he actually bought i believe it was right around 800 acres i want to say is it was some crazy magnificent number though because they said if he would have lived another 20 years because of the property that he had bought in Las Vegas. They said he would have been one of the richest men in the world be just because of the property investments that he made. Um, he ended up after he passed away, a lot of that got split up, you know, his benefactors, his daughters and stuff ended up not making very much money off of that, but he wasn't all dumb. But he got in way over his head because of uh, construction and stuff like that. And I don't know if you wanted to mention maybe the palm trees and the flamingos and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I read a couple of things that that people were sort of taking advantage of him. I don't know if Bugsy just wasn't paying attention or maybe he just figured people were doing what they needed to do and didn't question too much. Yeah, he was sold palm trees numerous times, the same set of palm trees. They would charge him, give him invoices for the same things over and over again. And 
he also wanted flamingos there and he had all these flamingos shipped in from florida and of course the the climate in florida is slightly different than the climate in nevada pretty much as soon as those flamingos started walking around the desert they were dropping dead and inside inside in a, a climate controlled environment but i don't even know if that was even possible back then or if they yeah know, they but. they had built like a moat in front of the flamingo <laughs> and they put or and they put flamingos in in there oh and it was the time of year in vegas where it's 120 degrees outside so they said within three days all the flamingos died and oh. you know bugsy was very very adamant on palm trees and i mean he was shipping palm trees from california you know, and, and there was no speed limit in Nevada at this point in time either. So you could get from, you know, L.A. or Hollywood to Las Vegas and, and ride about two to three hours. So they were shipping like all these palm trees out there because that's what Bugsy wanted. He wanted palm trees. And, uh, you know, they were dying because there's no there's no rain. <laughs> you know, There's no water. And it was just, it was a mess, you know, and, and speaking of the, the construction too, you know, the, there's pretty good reason to believe that there's a good chance he was getting taken advantage of by some of these construction people because, you know, he just, he didn't know, you know, the ins and outs about it. And he was going back and forth to the mob saying, I need 300 more thousand dollars. I need 300 more thousand dollars. You know, this whole project, when he first presented it to Meyer Lansky, and Meyer Lansky was the one who pitched it to the mob, they had, I mean, they had the Chicago outfit that was invested in this, um, you know, the guys in New York, and all in all, it was supposed to cost about a million dollars, and he's just burning up $300,000 at a time, and you know, he's saying, well, I need more, more money for construction, you know, more money for this, but there's also a, a good chance that him and Virginia were possibly skimming off of the top as well. Um, and I'm sure we'll get into that with her going to uh, Switzerland quite a bit, you know, in the, in the near future, unless you wanted to touch on that now. Yeah, we can, I think we're going to get into that pretty soon. Um, okay. Like you said, this vision of seagulls like just like wilkerson he wanted to run this gambling mecca and it was going to have the finest liquor the most exquisite dining luxurious accommodations and he wanted world-renowned entertainers to come perform and he had those connections still you know supposedly and it was going to be something that people could afford it was going to be high class and affordable but this vision was also going to be Siegel's downfall because the cost of putting the Flamingo together skyrocketed to six times its original budget of $1 million to $6 million by the time it was getting close to being finished. And not only that, he was being taken advantage of and ripped off by unscrupulous suppliers, construction companies, etc. And once the hotel did open, things didn't get any better. But before we get into the money pit, that the flamingo was i wanted to go back and talk about luciano and havana because this yes. is the place where they started talking about what the a problem 
Bugsy was becoming. So um, our old friend, Lucky Luciano, who was deported, he wasn't quite done with his dealings on this side of the world. And he still had some control over the syndicate. He wanted to come back and solidify it. So in October of 1946, he surreptitiously came to Havana in order to be closer to the United States. And his purpose was to reestablish control over the mafia's American operations and then go back to Italy. Um, he took a freighter from Naples to um, Venezuela. Then he flew to Rio de Janeiro. Then he flew to Mexico City. And he flew back to Venezuela. And from there, he chartered a private jet to Cuba. And um, under the guise of going there to see Frank Sinatra perform, who incidentally, I believe, has some strong ties to the mafia as well. Um, oh, do you yeah. Know that to be a fact. <laughs> you want to talk <laughs> oh, about old blue yeah. eyes <laughs> for a moment? Yeah, I mean, he was pretty into the mafia. He would he would entertain. He was very, very close with Sam Giancana out of New York and along with or out of Chicago, I should say. And then uh, a lot of the New York guys. But, you know, how close and what went on between them? I don't think anybody will really know unless they were there. But he had all the right connections when it came to that. And the mafia used him for things that they, they needed as well. I mean, they used his, uh, you know, ranch in California as meeting place every now and then if they had to do business and, you know, nobody's going to bug Frank Sinatra's house, you know, stuff <laughs> like that. I mean, yeah, Sam Giancana and Marilyn Monroe had met at his place a few times I mean, he was pretty thick in the, into the, the organized crime, like how much he was involved in some of their dealings. Personally, I don't really think he was too involved, but I think they both used each other to each other's advantage, if that makes okay. sense. Yeah, yeah, I get it. And um, so the mob bosses, they were going to have their meeting and they were under the guise of going to see Frank Sinatra perform. And this was called the Havana Conference, and it took place at the Hotel Nacional de Cuba, and it spanned the better part of one week. And the reason for this meeting was to discuss mob business, um, not really to see Frank Sinatra perform. You could probably figure that out. So <laughs> they may have done that as well. I don't know if Frank was there or not. I heard that he was. I even heard that he brought in some money with him for them as well. Like he flew in uh, them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I read that too. <laughs> it's yeah, a pretty yeah. good possibility. Nobody's because nobody's nobody's gonna question Frank Sinatra. He was one of the biggest entertainers in the world at this point in time. So um they also went there to see so Luciano could be there as well. That's why they had their meeting in Cuba. Because he wasn't allowed in the United States. He actually wasn't allowed anywhere but Italy, right? <laughs> For the most pretty part. much, yeah. He wasn't allowed to leave the country. So they also were going to discuss what they were going to do about Bugsy and the struggling Flamingo Hotel project. And they felt like something needed to be done about him because way too much money had been dumped to this place and it hadn't even opened its doors yet. Yeah. And um, the United States did catch wind that Luciano was in Cuba because he was kind of gallivanting around town and enjoying the nightlife with Sinatra so it became known very quickly that he was there and they wanted Cuba to send him back to Italy quickly. So they did. 
Well, the Cuba or the United States threatened Cuba, saying that they were going to halt their shipments of prescription drugs until Luciano was off Cuban soil. So two yeah. days later, Cuban officials reported that Luciano was in custody and uh, prepared to be deported back to Italy within two days. And he was sent on a Turkish freighter um, back to Italy. So, But this is where they started talking about what they needed to do about Bugsy. There were a couple instances where uh, Mo Sedway had, they had gone down there and basically just, you know, him and Meyer Lansky wanted to know what was going on. Mo Sedway was directly under Meyer Lansky. What happened was, is, is Meyer and Mo were sitting there going over the numbers and both men were so good with uh, numbers and business and math that they were both said to have like calculators in their heads. They could figure this stuff out. So they started realizing that all the money that they had sent down, there's no way that he he should need any more money. They're like, with all this stuff, like all the cost, this hotel should be done. And, and where's all this money going? So that's when they started really thinking that that Bugsy was skimming off of the top. And not only skimming off the top, but he was using Virginia to help him skim off the top because Virginia was taking a lot of um, trips to Switzerland for no reason at all. So they were like, well, maybe she's taking uh, money to a bank account there in Switzerland or whatever and right. just basically putting it into an account, which supposedly – as the legend goes, and this is totally unconfirmed, but supposedly they had the New York guys had caught up with Virginia Hill be on one of her trips, you know, either in or out of the country. And they I don't want to say they kidnapped her, but they took her in and they were like, listen, we're pretty sure that Bugsy is skimming. And if and you're involved with it, if you don't tell us exactly what's going on, we're going to throw acid in your face. And apparently she spilled all the beans and, you know, told them about everything. Now, like I said, that's just legend. You know, it's it's hard to verify that kind of information. But after this is when everything got really serious, because after this is when Mo Sedway went down to Vegas and met with Bugsy. And he was trying to tell he's like, hey, I'm down here to help you. You know, we're going to figure this out. We're going to get it built. He didn't go down there to kill him or anything. He was, he, they had been friends since they were literally 12 years old. And he was, I think he was genuinely trying to help him out. Like, let's figure this out because when we have to report the books to Luciano and the bigger guys, there's going to be a lot of problems. So we need to start like rolling a profit as soon as possible. So Mo Sedway goes down there and Bugsy Siegel took it just straight as offensive as you could. You know, he's like, what are you doing down here? And apparently those two had a meeting and uh, it is said that, and this is verified by witnesses, uh, Bugsy Siegel uh, kicked him in the butt so hard that he kind of went across the room and told him to, in other words, screw off, get out of here. You know, this is my operation. This is my casino. So Mo Sedway goes back to New York and reports this to Lansky. Mm -hmm. Now, Lansky comes down and he flies into Vegas 
And he straight up tells Bugsy Siegel, he's like, listen, first of all, Sedway is my guy. He's a good guy. He's never done anything bad to you. I said, he's a numbers guy. He's a business guy. He's like, that's my number one guy. He's like, don't ever do that to him, you know, again. And he basically started saying the same things that Mo Sedway was saying. He's trying to explain to Bugsy, like, hey, we're in a situation here. You know, we need to get serious. I'm down here to help you since you didn't want Mo's help. So Lansky... That, like they were such people don't get they had a a relationship i don't want to say you know not you know romantic relationship no, yeah. but they but were Bugsy, very very close and loyal very close yes mm-hmm. and and lansky saw what was going on he's the guy who bought bugsy siegel so much more time than what the mafia wanted to give him The mob wanted to kill him like six months before this, you know, because of all the money. You know, when they found out that he was more than likely skimming, they wanted to kill him right then. But Meyer Lansky is the one who went to or, you know, pleaded basically with Luciano. He was like, no, dude. He's like, we have known this guy from day one. He has always been our loyal guy. You know, let's just give him more time. And it got to the point where, I mean, after the whole Mo Sedway incident, you know, Lansky went down there himself and Bugsy was so far gone by this point. I don't know if he was just that egotistical or he thought he was just above the mafia, but he told Meyer Lansky the same thing he told Mo Sedway, basically, you know, with for lack of a better word, you know, he basically told him to screw off. He's like, I don't need you. Lansky went back to New York and and I think at that point he knew that it was too far beyond his control. Like no matter how much he would, you know, beg the the bosses or the guys above him, which Lansky was way at the top as well. But with the grand opening, I don't know if you want to touch on this a little bit, but you know, the grand opening was, you know, just December 26th, 1946, the day after Christmas. I, I don't know what state of mind Bugsy was in, but it, the pressure was on and he started to feel it. it regardless of him telling, you know, Mo and, and Meyer to, to go away, he knew he needed to start repaying. I think um, he, once he said, I'll take care of this myself, I, I believe he started to worry a little bit because yeah. before the project even completed, his hand was forced and he opened the flamingo on the day after Christmas and it was being touted as the West's greatest resort hotel. The Flamingo had 105 <laughs> hotel rooms, and none of them were ready. Um, mm-hmm. The casino, the theater, and the restaurant were completed. There was still construction going on all over the place. Lots of noise from people working, drop cloths in the main lobby. And it was supposed to be the very first building to be climate controlled. And that system kept breaking down. The place just wasn't ready and it wasn't presentable. And this meant that it wasn't going to turn a profit right away. The gaming tables were ready, but the luxury accommodations were not. So those coming to town were actually not able to stay at the hotel. People usually like to gamble where they stay and this wasn't happening. And Siegel's attitude um, about it wasn't helping things either. 
not during the construction phase, not during the grand rushed, the rushed grand opening. The building and development of the Flamingo was riddled with a lot of problems from start to finish. There was so many delays and everything was behind schedule. There was a shortage of materials due in large part because of World War II. And yeah. of everything expensive as well, you know. And Siegel kept needing to borrow more and more and more money. And he wasn't exactly the easiest person to work with or to work for. Now issues arose fueled by Siegel's ego. And he had sort of like this superiority complex about him, I guess. Yeah. And he'd lose his temper. He had violent outbursts, especially because everything wasn't going as planned. So for the grand opening, some locals did show up and a few celebrities did make their way into town for it. Um, but there was a storm that day as well. Yeah. And that, yeah. that hurt things too. Once it did open, the gaming tables were being attacked by con men and cheats also skimming and pocketing money. And then checks written on hotel accounts began bouncing and soon, the mafia guys back in New York started looking at the Flamingo as a hugely poor investment. It was bad for business, and it was making them all look bad as well. And the impatience had grown exponentially amongst the investors. And what made things worse was the fact that not only did they suspect that Siegel was laundering money, but like you said, Virginia was helping him to the tune of about $2 million dollars. Which, when I put that into the inflation calculator, it comes to about $27.7 million today. Yeah. And it's speculated that both of them were skimming money together and funneling it into a Swiss bank account. Do you and, know Bugsy Siegel's income from the race wire? Oh, no. No, I do not, actually. I had never heard of this before, but a race wire... Um, is what supplied customers with race entries, odds, running accounts, race results, and payoff prices, and they were sent over a network of telegraph wires. And bookies were able to operate without having any formal connections to a wire service. So they would get their the racetrack information from other channels, and that would allow them um, to be susceptible to what was known as post-betting, in which gamblers had access to inside information from the track on a winning horse, and they'd be able to place a bet after the race had ended and before oh. the bookies actually got the results. And Siegel was running all of this stuff as well. Nice. So, um, Not yeah, a bad yeah. idea. <laughs> I, I, it was kind of a side note that I ran into while researching what money he was making. On, he was making a lot of money. He was making and, a lot of money, yeah. So he was skimming money from these wire services as well as the Flamingo. Um, the grand opening was an epic failure, and Siegel was becoming seriously stressed, and he kept being told the casino was losing money at a very rapid pace, and his temper was taking over, and after two weeks after the grand opening, I read that the casino gaming tables were already close to $300,000 in the red. Yeah. And, um, I also read that the first weekend that they opened, they lost nearly half a million dollars. So at the end of January of 1947, um, they shut the doors of the mm -hmm. Flamingo. They were struggling pretty bad. And, and that goes back to the numbers, guys. You know, Mo Sedway and Lansky are sitting here and they know numbers and they're, they're sitting here thinking to themselves, it's a casino. There is absolutely no way a casino should be losing money. 
It's impossible. So that kind of sealed his fate. You know, they, I mean, there was, I think there was one instance where the casino turned a profit and he was able to pay back, you know, a little bit of money, but went from a $1 million venture to a $6 million venture and everybody is still losing money. And it just, it pretty much sealed his fate that. And I mean, obviously there's a lot of, there's a couple different theories about why he was possibly killed, but. And was still growing. And yeah. Once continued to flounder, um, I guess the mob assumed that profits would be rolling in immediately. And mm-hmm. it just wasn't. And um, that's when I think they really seriously started to decide they wanted to put a hit out on Siegel. Was given a second chance to get the place up and running properly. And that was due to help from Meyer Lansky holding off the mob guys, taking him away. He got them to stall a little bit. And having the second chance to regroup, Siegel was scrambling to turn things around. He, I think he started to understand that this was no joke anymore. He had the things that weren't finished completed and he made several renovations and upgrades. He also tried to bring in some positive media attention as well. So he hired Hank Greenspan from the Las Vegas Sun newspaper to try to promote the the casino. He was a publicist. And on March 1st, 1947, with Lansky was physically there that day, the Flamingo reopened its doors for business. And the place began turning a profit pretty much immediately. But unfortunately, it was a little bit, it was too little too late for, for the mob. They had already had their minds made up. They considered that Siegel had messed with their money. And I guess that's just not a thing that you're supposed to do. No, that's a really, that's the one of the things you don't mess with. Right. Whether it was con men, unscrupulous contractors, if it was Siegel himself, or if it was Virginia Hill, Siegel ultimately was the one in charge of it all. And he was the one responsible for the money that they felt um, was being skimmed from their investments. And I don't know if they knew or if they just heard that she was making these trips to Switzerland. I, like you said, some of that stuff is a lot of conjecture. And they think that they, in some ways, got Virginia to, do you think that she helped set Bugsy up? Oh, man, as much as I hate to say it, I honestly think that she did. I think, unfortunately, she knew the lifestyle and she knew what was eventually going to happen. And she was conveniently out of the country on the night that he was killed. Uh, She was in, I believe, Paris searching for drapes or shopping for drapes for the Flamingo. And I think whether she was involved or not, I'm not sure. I think she was, but I, I do think that she knew what was going to happen. I believe at the same time, their relationship kind of soured probably is sort of collateral damage as to what was going on, you know, with the business. Despite them having a very torrid love affair, it's often described as legendary, but it was also described as volatile, that perhaps Virginia really didn't consider Bugsy to be the greatest love of her life, that for her it was all business. I don't know if that's true or not. She, I don't, you know, it's probably the greatest love affair of all time. 
but I don't know. I'm on the fence about it, but I lean more towards business because I mean, they both had their other separate affairs and you know, Virginia had a long-standing reputation before and after, uh, you know, as did Bugsy, you know, it wasn't just her, but, but yeah, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm on the fence, but I do like to lean towards more towards, you know, it was, it was a really good business, uh, you know, really good business affair. Her old flame back in New York, Joe Adonis had a strong dislike for Siegel. You had talked about that earlier. And the long-standing affair with Virginia didn't help. And it's been thought that that might have been that he might have had the strong motive to want to get rid of Siegel as well once the Flamingo was up and running and um, mm-hmm. turning a profit. Um, because there were people ready to take over the Flamingo. And this place was a, a moneymaker. Others believe that the hit may not have come from Siegel's New York associates, but from the Chicago outfit the one that Virginia was associated with since the beginning of her entry into organized crime, that she cooperated with the plan to assassinate him because she was the one who was closest to him and she would be able to make sure that the hit could go down and she would be able to let them know where he would be and when. And um, he had sort of a reputation of being a creature of habit. So if she said at 5.05 PM, he's going to sit down on the sofa and read his newspaper that's mm-hmm. exactly what he's going to do. Um, Virginia and Siegel had rented a mansion in Beverly Hills. And on June 10th, the Chicago outfit ordered her to leave Los Angeles to fly to Chicago. I'm not certain if she told Siegel that she was going to Chicago or not. And I'm not certain of the last time she actually saw him. But she did tell him that she was going to go to Paris. Yeah. I don't think she told him that she was going to Chicago. And... I will say this. I read in a couple spots at one point in time, and I can't remember where I read them exactly, but they supposedly a week before his death, they had had a really big argument at their estate, at their house or whatever. I can't remember. I don't think it was at their mansion because I knew that he had just gotten back into town from Vegas not long before he was killed. But at some point, like I think it was like around a week beforehand, uh, he had gotten into an argument with Virginia, and it was about some of the side affairs that she was having. And she started um, getting very, very loud. She was uh, she was not one. If, if she, she was the girl that would make a scene, okay? So she started getting very loud and basically started uh, putting down his masculinity, I guess, for for lack of a better term. And Bugsy having the ego that he did, that was that was not cool. So I heard that he uh, beat her up pretty good and then raped her after that fight. Now, like I said, I'm I did read this from a couple various sources. Don't know how true it is, but. After that, supposedly he was in pretty deep with the Chicago outfit because that was their girl, you know. So I did read uh, a story about him sitting in a restaurant with uh, somebody. I can't remember who the guy was, but he was sitting in a restaurant and he got handed an envelope with a note in it. And uh, he supposedly when he opened this uh, note and read it, uh, he had a very concerned look on his face. And supposedly, 
the contents of the notes were from the guys in Chicago saying, Hey, the, that's going to be the last time you ever, you know, do that to Virginia. You know, how much truth there is to that, I'm not 100% sure. I did read it a couple different places, but, you know, that is one of the theories of, of his possible death, too. So I had to I had to throw that in there. There, there It's unsolved. Well, I'll just throw Still that unsolved. out there. Yeah, so yeah. Our theories abound. So when she left Los Angeles, she would never see Bugsy again. Like I said, he was a creature of habit and... I'm assuming if she was involved, if she informed on him that she told them where he would be at what time. And he was indeed um, sitting in the living room reading the evening newspaper. That's what he did every evening. That's precisely what he was doing on the evening of June 20th, 1947. He was sitting in the home that he had shared with Virginia. And he was with an associate named Alan Smiley. And he was reading the L.A. Times when someone opened fire on him through the living room window with a 30 caliber M1 carbine. Supposedly, the person was waiting in between the two houses and had the gun sitting in one of the V's of the Latisse that was outside the outside the window. Yeah, at about 9.45 p.m., nine shots were fired in fast succession. First two shots were were uh, in the head. And, uh, you know, just on that note, Bugsy Siegel, he was killed instantly. He, there was no suffering. Two shots, the first two shots hit him in the head. The first one uh, hitting the bridge of his nose on his right side. And uh, it was going from his right to his left. It entered the right side of the bridge of his nose with so much impact and pressure that it exploded his left eyeball out of its socket, which you guys, uh, the crime scene photos are very easy to find on on the internet, and that's why his left eye is just a spot of blood. (laughs) They put his death scene pictures in newspapers. Yeah, all over the place. The second bullet to his head entered his left cheek and exited his neck area. Two other bullets hit his upper torso. Uh, one of them went through his lung. The other one did lodge it, uh, lodged in his torso. Uh, the other five bullets missed. But like I said, he was killed instantly. And uh, the guy that was with him, I believe is, uh, they call him Smiley. Uh, the guy that was with him uh, was sitting on the couch right beside him. And as soon as he heard the shots ring out, he hit the floor. Uh, He was unharmed. uh, And I believe there were also two other people upstairs in the house at the time, too, which would have been uh, uh, Virginia Hill's younger brother, Chick, and his uh, either girlfriend or wife at the time. But, yeah, that's that's pretty much how it went down. And it was pretty big news at the time. There are some theories out there as to who did the actual shooting that nobody Yeah. Yeah, nobody's ever been convicted. Um, There was a guy who came out uh, years later by the name uh, Eddie Canizaro. Now, Eddie Canizaro was one of Dragna's guys, and supposedly Dragna got the green light from, it was either the Chicago outfit or the New York, the commission, to take Bugsy out because he was one of those guys that 
it had to be approved. Like you didn't lay hands on this guy unless it was approved. So uh, the reason that a lot of I there's no real reason that they discredited Eddie uh, Canizaro, but the thing about him was he was Dragna's main hitman. He ended up dying in 1987, by the way, but he his weapon of choice when he would do hits was a 3030 M1 carbine. That was his weapon, and he was very, very good with it, very effective. Now, given the gun that Bugsy Siegel was killed with, which was a 30 caliber M1 carbine, uh, and the fact that the first two shots were the head shots, uh, it's pretty... You know, for some people, it's easy to believe that that Canizaro was and he he came forward, like I said, years later, and he admitted to two federal agents and a news reporter that he was the one who killed Bugsy Siegel. And he laid out the whole thing for him and they they just kind of brushed him off. They, right. they really didn't pay him any attention. Yeah, I read that he had given that admission some years after he retired. I don't know what retired means, retired from his job or retired from the job, but he gave an interview to a reporter and he claimed that it was him that killed him. But nobody, again, was has ever been charged. I guess they just, just didn't take it seriously or didn't care. Yeah, and it's still an open investigation as of yeah, right now. If you want to look online, you can see some pretty chilling pictures you seen the toe tag picture? Yeah, yeah, where they spelled his name wrong, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> living room, it's very, very surreal to look at. So let's see, back to Virginia Hill. She's so fascinating in this whole story. Honestly, <laughs> She's a pretty episode. interesting character. She's probably worthy of an episode of her own. Oh, for and sure, yeah. After um, his death, she kind of seemed to spiral and she may not have exactly been all that stable to begin with, but I don't know how much she was affected by Siegel's death. It can only be speculated upon, but either way, she was in France when that happened, and she started another love affair, and she tried to deny any ties to Benjamin, but she had a lot of fear that she was being targeted for death as well because of the contents of Bugsy's diary were being leaked to the press. While she was in Paris, she would do the first of many suicide attempts by um, overdosing on. Yeah, her. she had what, like five or six in the in the twelve months following his death. Was not good at suicide. <laughs> no, she was not. <laughs> by July second, nineteen forty-seven, she was in Monaco and she tried to make another suicide attempt. She headed back to Paris that same month and made yet another and was rushed to the hospital. And she would eventually make her way back to New York, but upon arrival, she was questioned by investigators, which kind of spooked her again. So she went to Miami, Florida to hide out there for a while, and she attempted suicide again. And by the fall of 1947, I think she's trying to stay on the move here. She went on a hunting trip with Joe Epstein in Montana. She traveled with him to Spokane, Washington by the spring of 1948. She decided to leave Miami for good. She had bought a house there. She sold it. She went to South America for a while. She settled in Mexico for a bit. By 46, she was back in Chicago, and she stayed there for about a year and a half. In 1950, she went to Idaho, and she met a ski instructor and a downhill world champion skier named Hans Hauser. 
And within two months, she married him in Nevada. But because he wasn't a U.S. citizen, she started getting attention from the Immigration and Naturalization Services. So they decided to leave Idaho and they went all the way over to Maine. She had her son. She gave birth to a son named Peter Jackson Hauser. And the following month, they ended up feeling comfortable enough to go back to Washington. They bought a home there in Spokane. And then in 1951, she was summoned to testify before a committee in New York regarding their investigations into organized crime. And there's pictures of her at testifying there. You can find those as still a very beautiful woman at this point, despite all the ravages of life. (laughs) This is when she became a household name and people knew who she was. And as a result of the hearing, Virginia started being investigated. She was slapped with some tax fraud charges. And shortly thereafter, her and her husband were ordered to get out of the United States. So they went into hiding. They um, were spotted at an airport in Denver, and she was taken into custody. And she ended up being served with a tax lien of about $161,000 for tax evasion. And when that happened, she went to New York to try to talk to Joe Adonis again. But he was like, get out of here. He wouldn't have anything to do with her anymore. And a month after that, her belongings were all auctioned off by the IRS. And a month and a half later, she got a passport under the name of Virginia Hauser. In order to dodge the IRS, she went to Mexico. By the summer of 52, she and her husband went back to his home country of Austria, where they stayed in a pretty luxurious resort in Vienna. The IRS was still trying to track her down, but... Uh, she never had any intentions of going back, I don't think. No, I don't think she did either. She spent the next couple of years traveling Europe with Hans, and they made plans to try to build a ski resort. They never really put down any roots. They went to Hong Kong, they went to France, they went to Italy, and they stayed with friends as they went. This is a time when she started developing you know, addictions to alcohol and prescription drugs. Back in the United States, she was indicted um, by the federal grand jury in absentia for tax evasion, and she was actually placed on their most wanted list. Um, She tried to broker a deal with the U.S. authorities by offering up her own legendary diary. Do you know if this diary has been published or if... I don't think it has. I've never came across it. I I wish... (laughs) I really and want to come across it. <laughs> images of it, of transcripts, or, there's nothing. So it was ostensibly filled with mob secrets, and she wanted to try to turn in what she knew about the mob in exchange for these charges being dropped, but her offer was turned down. Um, she tried to get into Cuba and to Mexico, but she was refused entry, and um, they ended up staying in an apartment in Austria, and she would lay low for the next six years. In 1961, she managed to get to the Bahamas to meet up with some friends. And by the mid-1960s, her marriage had began to fall apart, and she moved into a motel in Austria. In in 1966, she asked Epstein and Adonis for some money while she was leaking to the press that she was going to publish her memoir. And both men decided to go ahead and send her money to try to prevent this from happening. On March 20th, 1966, she made a phone call to Adonis at his villa in Italy, but the phone call was tapped by the FBI, and two days later, she left her hotel with her 15-year-old son, left him behind. 
and she flew to Italy to meet with Adonis. After meeting there, um, there's two versions of what may have happened to Virginia after this. One is that Adonis had two of his men drive her back to Austria, and along the way, they pulled over and walked her into the woods and forced her to ingest a large amount of drugs to kill her because she attempted to extort money from Adonis. It's also been speculated that she wandered into the forest herself, distraught over her life. She was out of money. No one was willing to help her anymore. And by this time, she had at least seven failed suicide attempts. This time, she just went into the forest, ingested a lethal dose of pills on her own. She unfolded her jacket, leaned on a tree, and slowly became covered in snow and died. And do you know which theory holds more water? You know, I'm kind of... I'm kind of mixed on that one, Roseanne, to be perfectly honest. I could see it going both ways. The The only thing that bothers me about the suicide is she tried to kill herself so many times before, and it just didn't work. I'm not, uh, you know, I don't know what might have eventually clicked into her brain that was like, oh, it's going to work this time. But I could also see it going that way because she has... At this point, she had lost everything that she, I don't want to say had lived for, but everything was gone, you know? Maybe she succumbed to the elements, like she was no longer able. I know she was not very good at trying to kill herself, and this time, uh, I don't know. Possibly got, like, knocked out and then just succumbed to the elements. I could see, I could definitely see that. Very lonely, a very lonely end. So eight years later, in 1974, her husband, Hans, committed suicide. And her son, Peter, joined the Army and actually was a decorated veteran of the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. He died in a car crash in France in 1994. So all three of them, Virginia, Hans, and Peter, are interred together at a cemetery in Salzburg, Austria. And that was that. Siegel... He had his dreams and his desires and his triumphs and his tragedies. And he had glamorous friends and dangerous enemies. And he looked out for his friends. He seemed like he was a fiercely loyal person, but he could turn on them at at any point as well. And he just, he liked the good life and he liked the finer things in life and he wanted to have them. He was stylish and he was charismatic and At the same time, he was quick-tempered and brutally violent. He enjoyed, you know, drinking champagne with movie stars and nightclubs. But he also loved to watch somebody die a suffering death. Yeah. And then, and even on a broader spectrum than that, he also enjoyed spending time at home with his daughters, you know, playing around in the pool and, and being a dad. You know, he was just a very dynamic guy. There is not a lot out there about his role as a dad. There are some interviews with his daughter, away, but you don't hear that side of him, the family man, you know? Well, it's because the other side was so much more in the spotlight than anything else, I think, you know, what it comes down to that. And he was very, very weird about his private life being very private, like his home life and his kids. It was one of those things where like, hey, this is me out here. This has nothing to do with with my daughters, you know, or my, you know, at one point his wife, which his wife was never, ever really in the picture, you know. 
he did provide. No, he provided very well. Yeah. I mean, he, they had a extremely nice house, you know, in Beverly Hills. And then he had a couple separate ones, (laughs) you know, I mean, even, even Virginia had two mansions in Beverly, Beverly Hills herself. So, I mean, she was no, she wasn't along for the ride or anything. She had her own means. I don't know. He's a very interesting character, I guess, in that fashion. And I mean, you can debate all day, I guess, what led to his demise. I, you know, whether it was Vegas or his affair with Virginia or, you know, people just not liking him stepping on their toes in L.A. I don't think we'll ever really know. Personally, I think it's the I think it was the money from Vegas that finally caught up with them, but. There's a lot of people who well, there's a lot of people who think it was Virginia, you know, that ultimately, you know, the money combined with his love affair with Virginia, you know, there were certain people who were looking for a reason to kill the guy and, you know, used the money from Vegas as an excuse. Because even when the New York mob was was extending him time, you know, because Meyer Lansky was pretty much begging for it, um, the Chicago out- outfit was not. They're like, no, we're not gonna give him any more time. We're done. But Meyer Lansky had that power. He had that pull, and the the commission was a lot at the time was a lot more powerful than the Chicago outfit. So, do you know what the state of the mafia is today? Oh, it's still, uh, for lack of a better term, they are in the dark. They're waiting. They are more technical, technologically advanced now. God, that was a hard word to say. <laughs> um, technologically advanced. There we go. They still do a lot of the same things. You know, they have their rackets. They have extortion and stuff like that. Um, to be honest with you, Joe Joe Pistone, when if if any of you have seen the movie Donnie Brasco. When he infiltrated the Bonanno family and literally was almost an undercover agent who was a made man in the mob, that hurt the mafia really, really, really bad. And that between him and Sammy the Bull Gravano, who was uh, one of John Gotti's top, you know, he was his number one guy, he was his hitman. Between those two, Joe Pistone and Sammy the Bull, those two put a huge dent in the mafia. They put a lot of guys into prison. Joe Pistone alone as an undercover federal agent that infiltrated the Bonanno family for, I think it was about six years. Uh, He alone put about 200 guys behind bars. And yeah, yeah, it it was pretty bad. That and um, uh, I can't think of his last, I think it was Messino. He was a mob boss as well, but he was a mob boss that actually turned. He he ratted out a bunch of other mob bosses and, and stuff like that. Between those guys, when the higher-ups started ratting people out, um, that put a huge dent in, in the mob. But they're still out there. I think they're personally going back to their old ways of keeping it very close and very quiet and staying away from the limelight, stuff like that. So. Right. You can't get away with anything these days like they used to. It's really, really hard to. Um, surveillance, uh, right around in the mid to late 80s when surveillance started getting a lot better, that put a hurt on them real bad. When the court system came up with what they call RICO, which means you don't have to 
be able to prove that this person was directly involved, but they are involved in a criminal organization that was involved in doing whatnot. You know, that put a huge dent in the mafia as well. So Um, do you want to tell the listeners what RICO stands for? It's racketeering. I know like the overview, so I never actually think about what it actually stands for. People might not know what RICO is. Racketeer Influence and Corrupt Organizations Act. Yeah, yeah. Or for the RICO Act. Yeah, the RICO Act. It was an act, I believe, in 1970, and it was signed into law by Richard Nixon. It, uh, the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, and it's referred to as RICO. And it's basically saying that it, you know, it's a federal law, and it's I I don't want to say it really it specifically focuses on like organized crime, but it kind of does. It's mainly for racketeering. And like I said, it it can pinpoint somebody in an investigation that might not have direct involvement, but is involved in the acts of one single organization that is involved in this single act. I know that probably doesn't make much sense, but say, okay, here, here's a good example. Sorry, Roseanne, but I'm going to use, use you in this, in this, ugh, I'm going to use you as an example here. Um, let's say Roseanne is the head of a mafia family and yeah. this mafia family has the sweetest voices you've ever heard. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and um, let's say one of Roseanne's people gets caught in a racketeering charge or in a murder-for-hire charge. Well, if they decide to go with a re- if they can prove that Roseanne and this other person are involved in the same criminal enterprise or the same criminal organization, then that makes Roseanne guilty by RICO. Like, if they decided to go for RICO, which you only see in organized crime, if they decided to go Rico, all they would have to do is to prove that Roseanne, <clears throat> excuse me, that Roseanne was involved in this criminal or- organization or, you know, not even so much the leader of it, but they could, they could convict. There's been so many um, mobsters that have been convicted by Rico. It's, it's just insane. That was probably one of the, you know, better, better things that came around you know when uh trying to attack organized crime in the legal system you know i'm looking at wikipedia and i know this isn't like the greatest <laughs> source of information mm-hmm. but laws are being applied to other places as well are they there yeah there's um these rappers that are getting charged with some racketeering related crimes the health mm-hmm. angels have been charged using rico act mm-hmm. um street gangs in florida um, yeah. have been charged the catholic sex abuse cases yes. they filed legal suits against them um, and that's and the, that's the thing is that they'll always do it in groups yeah because it's easier the, to convict as opposed to prove that one person is guilty of this beyond a reasonable doubt the key west florida police department um has some rico charges filed against them back in 1984 including oh the police chief as well for <laughs> that's protection. Exciting. Yeah, they apparently <laughs> ran this protection racket. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Ops. Major League Baseball <laughs> in 2002. Yeah. The minority owners of the Montreal Expo baseball team 
filed charges against the um, commissioner and former owner of Expos, claiming that they conspired to devalue the team for personal benefit to prepare for a move. And so they got RICO charges on them. Nice. Yeah, that's pretty very, interesting. It, yeah, maybe <laughs> I didn't know that. I always thought Rico was yeah was a mob thing. <laughs> yeah, no, anything anything organized, you know, just like uh, you know, like you were saying, like uh, the police or uh, any kind of group or organization or something that you can basically prove is is organized. I guess you could say, yeah, they can slap it with Rico. Anyway, I'm at the end of my notes as far as this is concerned. So I think I've covered everything that I know about. I'm sure you have a whole wealth of information floating around in your brain. But this, <laughs> this has become really long. <laughs> this is going to be a long episode for sure. And yeah. no, I'm pretty, I'm pretty good on this subject. And um, when I go to do a mobster in the future, if you want to get in on it, you're more yeah, than welcome. To I'd do. love to. This is, <laughs> I, I definitely. As as much as his life was in the spotlight, he did have this home life, like you talked about. Yeah, he did. He was a family man. And he was a father. It's ironic that he wasn't killed anywhere but on a quiet evening at home. Mm-hmm. Reading the newspaper at 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> Definitely an interesting one. I kind of wished he had lived to see the Flamingo and Vegas become what it eventually became. Yeah, I tell you what, if he would have, he would have been just so amazingly rich just with the property that he bought, you know, and do you feel do you feel bad for basically a psychopathic <laughs> serial killer right yeah. now? <laughs> I, you know, I haven't posted about it yet, but you know, I I told you that I went to his grave, and I I will post it after um this episode goes up. It was very surreal standing there next to his his grave, and yeah, it is. You do feel a sort of sad that he was taken out, even though he yes he was a psychopathic killer. He only killed people that were other criminals exactly and you know? exactly he wasn't he never... a serial he wasn't like some weird serial killer out there <laughs> torturing women and toy boxes and like yeah. really crazy he wasn't like that he they they killed people that they felt did them wrong and... exactly and, and and they kept it within that organization you know right so i mean there's that i i i guess you could sort of <laughs> i have i have sort of like romanticized the whole story in my mind but i enjoyed going to see his um his burial place and most said way right as i was yes. walking out it's so weird to see that i know that's so crazy too i couldn't believe it they're in the same mausoleum there but i'll put all that up once um you say the episode's ready 